This episode of APC Presents is brought to you by the Appleton Podcast Co-op, a collaborative community of podcasters in Northeast Wisconsin. For more information, visit appletonpodcast.com. I'm David Kelso, and you're listening to APC Presents, where I showcase independent podcasters from Northeast Wisconsin. And on this episode, we're going to do something I'm going to start calling Dave's Faves. So last week, we talked to Eric Walterkins, who is the co-host with Gavin Schmidt on the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Their podcast is all about the history of mafia in Wisconsin. Eric plays the listener role, and Gavin is a historian. He's written over nine books, not all of them on the mafia, but plenty of them. He's a very well-learned guy. I really hope you enjoyed this episode from the Milwaukee Mafia called Counterfeiting. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, what do you got for us today? Well, so before I begin, I have to explain this one and I have to apologize to people. Oh, man. People don't like it when you break, start with an apology. (laughs) Well, I have to. Uh, First of all, people aren't going to know this, but this is actually the third time we've tried to record this episode. And oh, oh, it's the, yeah, it's counterfeiting. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So, um, it's, we're a little bit out of order on this one. We, we recorded it. We started to record it once. Um, we had a cat interruption. We started to record it a second time, and the sound just wasn't good enough. So I, I, we put it on the shelf, but it's coming back today. The reason I have to apologize is because this is the episode in which a man shoots another man at the Boston store, and we have referred to it. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> We've referred to it in other episodes, and... um not that that's a big deal, but if someone was like, I don't remember that, that's why. <laughs> because it, ne- it it was never aired before. Oh, so when did you figure that out? Were you when I was going through these notes. And you're like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's too funny. All right. Well, you've left them in suspense, and now they get to hear about the man who shoots the man yes. in the Boston store. <laughs> yes. And now we get to do we get to do counterfeiting. Hopefully for the last time. <laughs> uh, all right, Eric. So let's see if I can uh, if I can jog your memories here. Let's test you out a little bit. Uh, what uh, what branch of the government tracks down people for counterfeiting? Arrest people for counterfeiting? The Secret Service. Okay, good. You remembered. Yep. Yep. So usually when we think of the Secret Service, we think of the people who protect the president, which is true. They do that. Um, they originally were created to go after counterfeiters. The reason why they do both jobs, which seems like there's really no connection between counterfeiting and people attacking a president, is that President Lincoln signed it into law the same day that he was killed. So later on, when they had to create an agency to protect the president, they gave it to the Secret Service in honor of the fact that their birthday is the same as Abraham Lincoln's death day. And if the Secret Service had been around, Lincoln might have been okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's the only connection. That's why got these guys sometimes are bodyguards and sometimes are going after counterfeiters, which seems completely unrelated. That's the reason. 
That is so weird. Yeah. Okay. So at the beginning of the 20th century, um, counterfeiting is a very real problem. It's something that actually was fairly common. Uh, historian Mike Dash explains in his book, The First Family, how a mafia gang in New York really kind of used counterfeiting as their backbone of uh, how they raised money for their criminal organization. If you had a paper dollar or a coin that looked pretty close to the same thing, a lot of times if you were in a busy tavern or a busy marketplace, you could pass it off pretty quickly. Um, oftentimes they would use children to do this because children are suspected less. And, you know, the goal is you get something small. You get a, this is, you know, early 1900s. So you give a kid a quarter, tell them to buy a piece of penny candy, you get back 24 cents of real money. Uh, the, the trick is just getting it past the first. You're not going out. You're not counterfeiting a $100 bill and then trying to pass a $100 bill um, on like a TV or something. You know, you're trying to get the real money back. So this is also, uh, you know, as what's true in New York is also true in Milwaukee. So criminals in Milwaukee, some of whom were working with mob boss Vito Guardalabene and some of whom were not, um, they saw the value in counterfeiting. We'll probably never know how big these counterfeiting rings were because it relies on the fact that they had to be caught for us to know about them. So there are any number of people who are probably passing coins who got away with it. But there were some people who were caught um, between the years of 1908 and 1913, and that's the general range that we're going to talk about. Um, one, one thing that I think I remember from the last time we recorded this yeah. episode was that the kids that, that were trading the money in to get new money had a name. They and do have a name. And you didn't reference it, and I remember the name being kind of funny. For it, some reason. It is. It is. And I'll, and I'll mention it. There's, it comes up in my notes. I'll mention it when we get there. Yes, there is a funny okay. name. Okay. So we'll, we'll just hold off on that. But yes, it does come up. So the Milwaukee Police Department are getting these complaints about these counterfeit coins turning up in different places around town. Uh, there's similar complaints coming in in Racine and Kenosha and, of course, Chicago. And the Milwaukee police think, well, maybe there's a connection here. But they, they thought, you know, there's probably somebody local doing this. It's probably not people going back and forth all over the place doing this. I think that they were probably right. Our story really begins when a coal dealer brings a delivery to a boarding house. He brings in the coal. The landlord does not have enough change on hand to purchase the coal. So he goes to one of his uh, tenants there, a man named Carlo Zaccone. And Carlo's like, oh, yeah, 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 I can pay for the coal. You can just pay me back later. Um, he offered over some change and no big deal. The problem, of course, is that when the dealer left and is on his way back to, you know, the factory or his house or wherever he came from, he starts looking at the coins and he's like, these are not right. real coins. You know, maybe they would have fooled somebody, but this is a guy who's handling money every day. He knows what money looks like and he's not falling for it. He goes to the police and he he says, there's something wrong here. And he says where he got it from. Police are like, okay, we're on it. The next morning, detectives surrounded the boarding house. Three of them stood in the front while uh, Leonard Schweitzer was in the alley to prevent any attempt at escape. The precaution paid off. Soon, Zirconi came out the side door and was chased back into the building by Schweitzer, who grabbed at Zirconi's collar, almost pulling him to the ground. An elderly man, not named in the papers, an elderly man stepped into view and threw a chair at the police's feet, causing them to fall. Zarconi ran out the front door this time, knocking over a girl with 
a pail of beer. <laughs> I remember that from the first time we did this story as well. <laughs> yeah, always the pail of beer. He made it about 60 paces before the detectives overtook him. He was arrested with one counterfeit quarter on him, but they went back to his room and they found his passport, all kinds of phony coins in his pants, um, under the mattress. They even find a, found a roll of 60 quarters inside a telescope, which is odd, but that's what they found. They didn't find any equipment that would actually make the coins, so they thought that he must be working for somebody else. They thought that his job was, and here's the funny word, queer pusher. <laughs> yes. Some some would say funny, some would say offensive. But well, it's not it's not offensive though. It's, yeah, it's completely not related. But. Right? No, it's. I mean, it just means that he's he's pushing money that's strange. That didn't mean that back then. Okay, so at the station, Zarconi he refuses to speak with the police, but his landlord is more than happy to speak with the police. So he tells them about what he knows, and he says, you know, it is kind of strange. Um, he's unemployed, but he always seems to have money. <laughs> so something was up with that. Uh, the Secret Service did not actually have offices in Milwaukee at this time, so agents had to come in from Chicago. And they said, oh, yeah, we know him. He's one of the gang of Italian counterfeiters that goes back and forth between Chicago and Milwaukee. I have no idea if they know this, if this is true, <laughs> or if this is just something they told the papers. I don't know why they would know that. But, yeah, that's sort of with the arrest. They were like, oh, yeah, he's one of the he's one of these guys. We yeah, know. we've been on to him for a while now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, in counterfeiting, I should point out, I mean, it was very profitable. Um, today, when you make coins, it costs more to make the coins than the face value of the coins are. So it's really every time we make more coins, we're losing money. Um, but at that time, uh, silver was actually pretty cheap. So if you got a 50-cent piece – you could make it for 25 cents by melting it down and reshaping it. A dollar could be made for 50 cents. So really, if you had a good enough mold, um, you could just keep melting and remaking over and over and over again. So the, the counterfeiting process was really all dependent on how good your molds were. Um, and I don't know if you had to do this in high school. We used to have to – we had a shop class where we'd have to make molds out of like sand and we'd pour molten metal in there. Yeah. Okay, so you, you you understand the process, yeah. and yeah, and it's like yeah, sometimes they look good, and sometimes the edges are kind of rough. So, I'm curious. You kind of alluded to this, and I want to clarify to to this. So, is this how was it kind of common counterfeit back then, where they would take like a quarter, melt it down, and make two quarters? Yeah, is that kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, you could you'd have to mix it with something else to. You know, double the amount of the metal, but yeah. But so it was when you had a counterfeit coin. It was if you handled money enough, it was very easy easy to tell that something was wrong, right? Because it was always going to be. It wasn't like they were going out getting real silver, creating it almost exactly like a real right coin. Right, it would have some silver in it, but it wouldn't be. Right. I mean, otherwise, it would defeat the whole purpose. But, but, but yeah. Yeah, I suppose because back then. The coin was probably worth what the silver was worth it was made of, right? Well, if it was I mean, melted down. But otherwise, the, yeah. the face value is actually more. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So counterfeiting is, it's again, it's fairly common. Uh, while Zarconi's in jail awaiting trial, other men are arrested for counterfeiting. Um, there's a few more men who are caught between Milwaukee and Chicago. Uh, one of them is a man named Theodore Murdoch, who gets to be a little bit notorious later on. Not really relevant to our story, but... Um, he gets known because he gets brought to Leavenworth, which is where everybody who was counterfeiting got brought. 
and he ended up escaping by uh, hijacking a train with a wooden gun. So uh, he, he was out for a little while. Um, even a barber in Milwaukee was caught passing a counterfeit $2 bill. So it was going around often enough. Zarconi had his day in court. Uh, he claimed he didn't know where the co- that he didn't know the coins were counterfeit, and that he had received them from another Italian immigrant who he refused to name. Uh, nobody really believed this story, especially with how many fake coins he had in his room. I mean, if he would have had like a couple coins in his pocket, maybe. But when he has entire rolls of fake coins, that's you know a little suspicious. <laughs> he pleaded for leniency. He said. My wife and family, their home is in Palermo, which is in Sicily. Uh, They're in the earthquake district. They're now, I mean, maybe they're alive. Um, And if they are alive, they're wandering homeless and hungry about the ruins. Our home was totally destroyed by the earthquake. Well, I was in the county jail. I have only a few short months to live. I have consumption and will probably never see my wife and family again. I ask for the mercy of the court. Second half of this is true. He did have consumption, which is what we now call tuberculosis. Okay. So he, that's true. Uh, the earthquake story is probably full of crap. Uh, there, was, there was an earthquake that happened that year um, in Sicily. It measured 7.1 on the Richter scale. It is, to this day, the worst earthquake in European history. It killed. You're not even going to believe this. It killed 75,000 people. Wow. But it did not happen anywhere near where his family <laughs> lived. Yeah, pretty sure they were just fine. He was sentenced to two years of hard labor and sent off to Leavenworth. Okay, next we have Angelo Brando. Angelo Brando was arrested along with Stefano Zarconi, same last name, and Santo Marino, and they were accused of passing counterfeit money. Brando had passed a phony $2 bill at a saloon, but he claimed, quote, I had a fix, and while in that condition, my money was exchanged for counterfeit money by an unknown person. I do not know what it means to have a fix. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't know if this means he was drunk or, yeah, yeah on drugs or uh, what that means. But whatever it was, he was in some condition where somebody went in his pockets, took his money, and put counterfeit money in his pockets. Um, this sounds very believable. Right. They, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't think this happened. Yeah. They kind of doubted it. So they were brought to court, and the case was pushed off for a little while because the police were hoping they could find where these coins were being made. They said, well, we keep arresting these guys for this money, but where are they actually making it? They believed that these were part of an organized gang that was making and passing the counterfeit money again between Milwaukee and Chicago. Could they find it? They did not find it. No, of course not. No. While at the police station, Santo Marino tried to escape, but he was quickly apprehended. Now, he comes from Santa Flavia. Um, so do the Zarconis, by the way. And Santa Flavia, if you remember back to the very beginning of this podcast, that's where most of these Milwaukee guys are coming from. Mm-hmm. When he came to Milwaukee, he lived with his brother, Nicolo Marino, who worked as a butcher. They had good ties to the mafia. They were close friends with the Guadalabanes. And here we go. His brother, Nick Marino, is the guy who shoots another man at the Boston store. And the reason for this is allegedly he purchases a go-kart. And I don't know what go-kart means at this time. This is what the paper calls it, a go-kart. And when the go-kart is delivered to him, it did not come with a blanket. (laughs) And that upset him so much that he shot the delivery man. 
at the Boston store. I, we could have a full episode just trying to figure out what a go-kart is. Yeah. Okay, it's uh, something you have to have a blanket for. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be. Right. And it's obviously not what, when we say go-kart, it's yeah. obviously not that. Yeah. So I don't know. But he was very upset about it. So if somebody out there knows what a go kart is, please email us. Yeah, and let us know. I'd like to. Would, I'd like to know. We would like clarification on this. Okay, so these guys are now in jail, awaiting trial. Again, counterfeiting does not stop just because these guys are in jail. The detectives get a tip from a grocer and raided a third ward home of a man named John Hadukovich, noting here that again he's in the third ward, which is where the Italians live, but he is not Italian. And they uncover, quote, a bona fide counterfeiter's den. They were held back by his wife, who scratched the detectives and fought, again, quote, like an Amazon, to keep them away. After they restrained her, a search commenced. The police had finally hit the jackpot. Whether Hadukovich was supplying the local Italians with fake coins or not, I don't know. I mean, it could just be a coincidence that he lives in the same neighborhood. But either way, he was definitely supplying somebody. They removed a rug from the kitchen floor, and a trap door was discovered. Inside, they found a few stairs that went to a shallow, shoulder-height basement that contained counterfeiting equipment. The detectives found plaster, molds, furnaces, metal files, sandpaper, a metal ladle for pouring the molten metal into the molds, a vice, and a bunch of semi-completed counterfeit bills. So I don't know what goes into making a counterfeit bill, but they were only half-made. Six phony half-dollars were nearby, but what they did not find was the man himself, John Hadukovich. His wife was questioned, and she said, Ah, I haven't seen him in three days. I have no idea. She said that he traveled around a lot. In fact, they only had recently come to Milwaukee from Minnesota. Uh, I don't know anything about any of that. So they're brought into the police station, of course. And at this point, well, now they're starting to change their mind. They're they're actually going to talk now. Now that they're in the police station. She said that after her husband was gone for a few days, they had no money or food in the house. So she opened a chest just to see what was in there and found it was full of coins. (laughs) She gave some coins to her sister and told her sister to go to the store and buy food for everybody in the family. Um, Her sister didn't know any better, so she took the money and brought it to the grocery store. And the grocer said, "Uh, I can't take that. And he had another person follow them home who marked down the address and turned them into the police. So they, they knew what happened. They had, I mean, maybe they didn't know at the time, but I think they figured out pretty quickly. And I suspect the wife probably knew. Around six the next morning, a patrolman sees John Hadukovich return home and the patrolman ducks behind a fence. As Hadukovich approaches the front door, the patrolman jumps out, surprising the man and he puts him under arrest. A search of his pockets finds $30. But then the man said, I'm not Hadukovich. I'm actually a man named Dan Mellish. I just happen to live here. At the station, they quickly found out this was not true. Uh, he was, in fact, John Hadukovich, not Dan Mellish. A clever ruse, though. Very, very good trick. So this Hadukovich, which, yeah. by the way, I don't think this Hadukovich was in the original story that we no? did. I don't think so. But... uh so he's not Italian whatsoever. No. Definitely no ties to the mafia. But this is the one person that we do know actually was creating money. Correct. Because if you remember on, on our previous recording, we talked about the possibility that everybody that you talk about in all the mafia members that you talk about that are actually doing counterfeiting, mm-hmm. they're 
they weren't really doing they're never busted with a large amount of money. Right. And and I kind of had speculated that maybe there was another per- person that was feeding these people with money. Maybe this wasn't even a mafia thing that mm-hmm. they were doing counterfeiting. They were just mafia members that were criminals and they found out about counterfeiting money and they were like, do you think that's possible that this guy could have just been an outside guy making fake money and had relationships with mafia members or yeah, it's possible. Um, like I said, um, he lives in the third ward. So everybody who lives like within a few blocks of him is Sicilian. Yeah. You know, so he's definitely in that community. There's never like a direct connection established. Like between him and a, yeah. an actual yeah, and I don't. And I don't know if I. I don't know if I mentioned this a little bit later on, but um, when he does go to prison, like even the prison records, there's no evidence whatsoever that he's talking to anybody. Yeah. So you never see letters going in and out from right from mafia members sending him letters or whatever. Right. Right. So, so it's weird because he lives in the right neighborhood to be interacting with these guys. But I can't prove that. Mm-hmm. So it could just be an incredible coincidence. I don't know. But either way, he's supplying somebody. Either that or he's going on constant shopping sprees. I don't know. Mm. But he's making large amounts of, of money. And at this point in time, for him to be living in the third ward, mm-hmm. not be Italian, isn't that kind of strange? It's a little strange. I mean, I'm, I'm it's, sure there was people... Other people not Italian. But yeah, the vast majority of the people were the the, the vast majority were Italian. Italian. I mean, there are, yeah, there's exceptions. I mean, but it is odd. Mm-hmm. It's definitely odd. And then couple on top of that that he's definitely creating fake money. Yeah, it even adds to the suspicion of it. I get. Welcome to the podcast, Fast Class. We've got 60 seconds to learn, so buckle up. Lesson number one, why podcasting? In a world dominated by video, here are five reasons to do audio only. Number one, podcasts have exploded and are growing. From 2016 to 2021, monthly listeners in America rose to 68%. That's an estimated 193 million listeners. Number two, podcasts are cheaper and more flexible to produce than video. Crappy hotel room, premium studio, no one will know the difference with a decent microphone, a pillow fort, and some editing magic. Number three, podcasts are personal and trustworthy. Studies have shown that listeners are more likely to purchase and engage with audio-only shows compared to other mediums. Number four, podcasts serve content for a different type of person, for sharing ideas, discussion, and entertaining without needing your eyes. Number five, creative audio is a grand experiment. There's new technology to explore and topics and ideas yet to be covered. With some luck, elbow grease, and a dazzling personality, you can carve your way into the ears of listeners everywhere. So let's hear your reason. Why do you love podcasts? Why do you want to start one? Let us know and watch the longer video version in the APC members Facebook group. Link in the comments. <sighs> Back to the show. Yeah. Wow. So he actually went after he's arrested and they find out that he is who he they think he is and he's not this other made up guy. He's actually very talkative. He tells the authorities that he was trained by a well-known counterfeiter who he does not name and that he his mentor and another member had recently come to Milwaukee from Minnesota, but then he got in a fight with the man who trained him on how to counterfeit. 
and he sent the, his mentor back over to Minnesota and said, go away. <laughs> we, we don't know because he wouldn't name anybody else. He wouldn't give up other names. We don't know who his mentor was. I would love to know who his mentor was, um, if that's even a true story, but we don't know. So, again, he's willing to confess to this, but he's not going to give anybody up. He, he pleads guilty, so he ends up going off to Leavenworth. Uh, Angelo Brando pleads guilty. He goes off to Leavenworth, and so these guys are getting sent off. Even though they're involved in unrelated cases, uh, Hadukovic and Brando are actually in court on the same day. It just happens to time out that way. And it's kind of weird. <laughs> so Brando goes to court. Angelo Brando goes to court. And he's still, he's maintaining. He's like, I'm not a counterfeiter. I don't even know these guys that you arrested me with. I have no idea what's going on. This is the guy, you know, who claims they were switching money in his pockets. Mm-hmm. So he's in court, and in the middle of court, he starts having a fit, and he's spasming around. He falls over. His chair flips over. He falls on his back. He rolls around. He starts, like, drooling and biting his own wrists, and and he's bleeding all over from biting himself. There's something really wrong with this guy. Uh, But this did not help. Um, He was still found guilty, and he was, uh, you know, sent off to Leavenworth. So, unfortunately, (laughs) whatever he was trying to pull there didn't work. So these people, these other people that we've been talking about, they they didn't really have a large amount of money right. on them, but they still went to Leavenworth. Yep. Is this like, I, I mean, any counterfeiting is immediately going to Leavenworth? It seems it? that way. Like anybody who comes up, like who came up in my research anyway, I mean, no matter how small the amount was, the minimum they were going to get was a year. And like this is how it works. Like if you're under a year, if you're sentenced to under a year, you can go to the county jail. But once they sentence to you to one year in one day, it's automatically okay. prison. Okay. Yeah. So like a lot of these sentences, like they'll be like, I sentence you to one year in one day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so then you get shipped off to Leavenworth. <laughs> So Santo Marino, another one of these guys caught with with Brando, uh, he goes to trial for passing counterfeit bills, and he's actually almost acquitted. Um, the first time the jury votes eleven to one, um, so it's a hung jury. They have a second trial, and at this time, rather than go to the second trial, uh, he pleads guilty and he gets sent to Leavenworth. Um, why he pleads guilty, I don't know, because he almost got off the first time. Yeah, that seems really suspicious. It's almost like somebody told him to yeah. plead guilty. I don't, I don't know. Because, yeah, as soon as you plead guilty, you know you're going to prison. So I'm not really sure what his, his plan was there. I mean, could have been just, could he not afford a lawyer again? Maybe something like that. Our third guy uh, arrested in this, in this batch is... Stefano Zarconi. Now he comes to America. He's in America as early as May 1902. Uh, he moves in with other people in Milwaukee and he moves into the Guadalabene household. So he's actually living with the mob boss, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it probably means something because <laughs> it's, I can't imagine that, that the boss is sharing his house with a lot of people, people you know, yeah. unless he really <laughs> trusts them. So um, this should, should tip them off that this guy is somebody. He's arrested, of course. And unlike the other guys, he's actually bailed out of jail. He's bailed out by a bondsman uh, who is Dr. Philip Gazuda. 
and I'm probably saying that wrong, but we'll just go with it. Um, he's notable for a few reasons. One, he is the very first doctor, Italian doctor in Milwaukee. He got to be pretty well known for that. And he was aware of the fact that a lot of people in the Italian community were poor. They were new immigrants, whatever. So he would accept alternate payments. Like he'd say, oh, just have me over for dinner a couple times and we're fine. So he was actually really cool about that. Um, he also got to be known later on because he's the father-in-law of a, of a mob guy who will come into play later, uh, not for a while down the road, but um, the name will come up again eventually. The problem here is Bond is posted in Zirconi when his trial comes up. He's nowhere to be found. Of course. He first flees to Chicago, and in Chicago he is arrested. And you might recall this because this is a pretty memorable thing. He's arrested in Chicago. They don't know that he's wanted for counterfeiting because they're not that good about communicating this sort of thing. Uh, but he is arrested for a completely unrelated crime, and that is stealing a horse and dyeing the horse, horse yeah, yeah. <laughs> to look like a different horse. Which is a whole story in itself. It really is. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Because obviously this was a thing. You steal somebody else's horse, and so they don't know it's their horse. You dyed another color. So he gets you know arrested for that, but apparently this isn't that big of a deal because he isn't actually kept in jail. They just kind of tell him, you know, show up for court when you're ready. So he takes this as an opportunity. He's like, okay, uh, that was pretty close. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and he leaves, and he goes all the way back to Sicily. He does not come back, which is really unfortunate for the guy who bailed him out. Because uh, if you know how it works when you post bond, if someone doesn't show up, you're you stuck with it. Hey, you lose the money. Right? Yeah. So um, his bond was $2,000, which adjusted for inflation. <laughs> nice. Would you like to know how much money? Yes, I would. $47,000. Wow. So this doctor is now out $47,000. Bummer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Going back to our original guy, Carlo Zarconi. The other Zarconi here, so not to make this more confusing than it has to be. He arrives at Leavenworth, and immediately he fails his physical exam. He's This is the guy who also had tuberculosis, but he's got... He's got serious heart problems on top of that. So the prison doctor tells the warden, uh, this guy is not going to live very long. Um, don't expect him to serve out his sentence. And the warden is like, okay, all right. We have to get a hold of his family let them know. You know, We'll make an exception. You can come to the prison. You can visit him. He might not live out his sentence. The funny thing here is they ask for like who they should contact. He says, oh, I'll give you the address of my cousin. The cousin... <laughs> They, whose address they get is the guy who just fled back to Sicily. <laughs> so they send this letter to Sicily and say, hey, just so you know, your cousin might be dying. Let the family know to come visit him. So this, I'm sure the warden has no idea that this guy that they're sending this letter to is supposed to be in Leavenworth for counterfeiting. <laughs> but he's just telling them, like, your cousin's really sick. Uh, just a general note here. Uh, Leavenworth actually was pretty new at this point. Um, it had only opened up as a as a prison for the general public in 1903, so it's only been open about five years or so. Um, and the federal government was actually pretty new as far as getting into the whole prison game. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons was not even created until much later, 1930, and Alcatraz didn't open until 1934. So just to give you an idea, like this is way before Alcatraz. Leavenworth is like the original federal prison. It used to be the prison they would send. 
uh, military guys too when they right. did things you're not supposed to do with yeah. military. Yep. So, oh, you you know this? Yeah, I know that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually how I know Leavenworth. Okay. Do you know guys who went there? No. Okay. <laughs> Rambo. Yeah, but no, it is that. Yeah, Leavenworth was originally like a military prison. Uh, so okay, John Hadukovich, Angelo Brando, they show up in Leavenworth. Um, Brando is amazingly he's granted a trustee status, and a trustee is somebody who's kind of like gets special permission to roam around because they have work they have to do kind of cool this guy who is something seriously wrong with him and he's a counterfeiter but they're like eh, you, you seem okay <laughs> they let it they let him roam around and it's weird because while he's roaming around he, he keeps getting in trouble for talking to people when he's not supposed to talk i don't know why there's strict rules or at least were strict rules about when and where you could talk to other inmates but there were he ends up striking up like a conversation with these guys. You might remember this from when the first time we did it with these guys out of Ohio, uh, Salvatore and Sebastian Lima. And these guys were pretty well known because they were members of a mafia gang that was called the society of the banana. (laughs) Okay. Can't forget that one. The society of the banana, which um, was essentially a black hand gang. That was mostly what it was black hand stuff sending letters to people and they ended up getting brought down by the postal inspector to that area because, you know, they're sending things in the mail. You're not supposed to send in the mail uh, like death threats. <laughs> so he strikes up conversations with these guys. Total side note there. I mean, if anyone's interested in that story, there is a really good book out there. And I don't remember exactly what it's called, but if you look up society of the banana or you look up Frank Oldfield, which is the guy who brought them down, you find the book. It's pretty good. Um, and you find just how weird these guys were, because unlike any other mafia group, they had an actual ledger of the known members yeah, of their I, group. Okay, I remember yeah. you saying that. Yeah. So. Which, like, I don't know who thought that was a good idea, but they had meetings where they would keep track of who their members were. They had, like, their corporate minutes where they would sit there yeah. and write notes about everything they were planning and stuff. Yeah, they did. They did, which is really dumb, but that's what they did. So Brando's talking to these guys. Um, but what's really interesting about him is when you look at the letters that he was sending and receiving in prison, he's in regular contact with Vito Guardalabene, the mob boss in Milwaukee. Um, he's also sending letters to a man named Charles Lucchese, who lives at the Guardalabene house. I have no idea who Charles Lucchese is. If somebody does, um, let me know, because that's a name that I have no other record of other than this. And it's weird, again, that he's living at this house. So he obviously probably had something to do with the mafia, but just apparently well, never, likely. Yeah. never got enough trouble or yeah. just enough exposure to even for us to, for anybody, for there to be any record of it, I guess. Exactly. That's crazy. He's also sending and receiving letters from Rosario Dispenza, who's not a name that most people are familiar with, but he was actually the mafia boss in Chicago at the time. So this is a guy who is trading letters with both the mob bosses in Milwaukee and Chicago. So if there's anybody who's who's connected in counterfeiting between Milwaukee and Chicago, it's probably this guy. And, and you said this guy really, he he's tied to the mafia, but he was never really anybody in the mafia. He was just a guy in the mafia, right? Like, so he, the mm-hmm. fact that he had this kind of, he was having contact with people of this much power was very strange. It was very strange, at least to me. I mean, as as I have to say, like, every time, 
you know, I can only know what the records are there. I mean, for all I know, this guy was, was actually some big, important guy. I don't know that, but there's no record of that. You know, he wasn't constantly being arrested or he wasn't, you know, talked up in the papers for any reason at all. The only reason I know about him at all is because he got caught for this counterfeiting thing. He wouldn't have got caught for that. His name would have never come up. And, but yet he just has direct line contact to all these big, important people. Yeah. Which is just unbelievable. Yeah. So. So there is a whole lot missing to his story. There definitely is. And unfortunately, that's probably going to stay that way. Yeah. Sano Marino, he enters Leavenworth. Um, and he's in regular contact with his brother, the Boston star shooter. Okay. <laughs> um, he only ever writes one letter to Vito Guardalobeni, but he didn't receive a reply. So I don't know. <laughs> don't know what that says about him. But but I guess I mean they knew each other, but I guess they weren't that close. He was also granted trustee status, so he was able to roam a little more freely. Um, and, it, and actually, the reason he got trustee status was because he could actually speak English really well, which is kind of uncommon. Uh, among these guys, um, you know, it, it's it's weird to think about that because obviously we're talking in English right, right now. Yeah. But a lot of these guys, this business was all conducted in Italian or Sicilian or whatever. Their English was generally speaking not very good at this point in time. That was a big deal if you could speak English. All of these guys are back out of Leavenworth in the next few years. You know, nobody was in there that long. Um, Carlo Zarconi returns to Milwaukee. Hadukovic ends up going back to Minnesota. Um, Angelo Brando, I don't know where he ends up. I have no idea. Again, I'd love to know more about this guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he gets. So he to- just disappears out of. Yeah. Head. Like, I don't know. It, and it's weird because, again, for people who don't know, like a, a big part of how I do this research is like I'm looking at census records and things like that. So after this, the next big census would be like 1920. And he doesn't show up in there at all. At all. I mean, he might, maybe he's moved to California or something, but he's not living in Milwaukee or Chicago. I mean, he's gone. So I don't know where he went. And Santo Marino ends up moving off to Brooklyn. So he's, he's kind of out of the area too. So how did you find that Santo Marino had moved to Brooklyn? I mean, okay. The reason I know that is because. Is through ship records because he ends up actually after this, when he gets out, he leaves and goes back to Sicily and then he comes back again. And when you sail across the Atlantic Ocean, you have to fill out a form on the ship. It's called the ship manifest. And you have to write where you're going to be living when you arrive. And he wrote his uncle's name and address in Brooklyn. Now it's possible after that, he maybe just lived there for a few weeks and then came back to Milwaukee. I don't know. But initially when he came back, he came to Brooklyn. So you're sitting there, you actually go through and look at ship records. Yeah. To see the movement of people. Yeah. Oh, it's a serious business, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) May I say boring. Oh, well, (laughs) yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Um, and after this, it seems like counterfeiting just sort of slowed down. I mean, it never, ever stops. Um, I have a note on my notes that says, you know, if you Google Milwaukee and counterfeiting, like even just like in the last few years, people are still getting caught for it. It happens, but it's not like it used to be. It's, it's very uncommon. And usually when they get caught now, like it's kind of laughable, like what people get caught with because it doesn't <laughs> even look like money. So. Uh, they've definitely made it harder to make fake money than they used to be. 
But yeah, uh, it's pretty much as far as like it goes in the Italian section of Milwaukee, it all just kind of stopped. The last one that I really know about was in February 1916 when these guys are passing counterfeit coins in a saloon and they end up, you know, getting arrested for that. But even there, that was barely even a headline. It went from being like this big deal, the counterfeiters caught in Milwaukee to being like page three. (laughs) We got a couple counterfeiters. So already within a few years, it's not even considered like that exciting anymore. Um, so that's sort of like the end of counterfeiting. The counterfeiting maybe will come up again later on because during World War II, there's a brief bump up in counterfeiting. Um, but otherwise, that's pretty much like just these few years. It's like a peak year, and then it kind of stops. Just kind of giving an, a scale of this being one of the things that the mafia was into in Milwaukee. Uh-huh. Was this a, Was this just a blip in the radar that they were doing this? Was this a big part of their organized crimes schemes or well again i always have to use the disclaimer i mean i can only go off of the records that i have um but based on the records that i have i would lean more towards it being a blip because yeah other than the fact that you know they're exchanging letters with these mob bosses so obviously the mob bosses are aware that this is happening there aren't really any names that like are going to come up later on and like be these guys who are like oh yeah these are these guys are coming up again and again and these big names these guys are, for the most part, pretty forgettable. So it seems like it was something you did. I mean, obviously, it's a way to make money, and they'll do anything they can to make money. But it what doesn't seem like they were putting a whole lot of effort into this. It, it almost seems like they maybe tried to get it started, mm-hmm. and it just never caught on. Like, they just never had a lot of success with it. And then, you know, enough of their people that were out there trying to get it started – got arrested, got, went off to Leavenworth and then came back and they're just like, yeah, we're just not going to do that anymore because mm-hmm. it just didn't work out very well for us. But I'm assuming in other areas, this was a huge thing for, yeah. for, for the mafia. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, like so there's the, the Mike Dash book, The First Family. And I mean, these guys were really sophisticated in New York. I mean, they were... I don't know if it was like their primary thing they did, but it was definitely one of the big things they did. So they had it figured out of how to actually keep it going. Yeah, I'm just curious. Was that around the same time? Did they yeah. do it around the same time that yeah. it was going on in Milwaukee? Yep. I, I mean, I don't remember the exact time frame. It might have been a year or two sooner or something like that. But yeah, generally speaking, same time. So a year or two sooner, Milwaukee catches on that. New York is out doing this, and mm-hmm. they try to jump into it and just fail miserably at it. Yeah, <laughs> it would be my guess, you know. Yeah, so and that's a running theme uh, that you'll see. Like any of these schemes, it's it's like a carbon copy across the country. The Black Hand letters, every major city had them. You know where they started, I don't know, but everybody was copying everybody on that. The counterfeiting, different gambling, the different kinds of prostitution they were doing throughout the years. It's like any major city, you'd see these same things, like almost identical everywhere. And it wasn't like they were, you know, calling people up and being like, hey, how are you running your business? Like they just all kind of figured these things out. It wasn't just one big conglomerate that was doing it all. Yeah. It was just that they looked over and saw, hey, they're doing that. Let's try to do that. Yeah. And then they would jump onto it, which makes sense. That's the way things work. Sure, sure. It's just, it's weird, like how. Any given crime has like its peak years, and it's yeah. like the peak. Year. It's not like it's the peak year in this city. It's like the peak year everywhere, and then it's gone again. Yeah, 
and then maybe 10 years later it might come back sure somebody will re- revise it re- revive it or something yeah but it's it's just a weird phenomenon I got I got one little one last thing. If, All right. If you got any no questions, questions, if you got any questions, throw them out now. But otherwise, I got one last thing. No, I think I'm good. Okay. So I just wanted to. I don't know how much time we're running over on now already. Oh well, I'll tell you after we're done. Okay. So okay. All right. Well, either way, uh, just a quick note. I wanted to talk about um, the research because the problem with researching this is. The way that the records are kept. The court records, the federal court records from Milwaukee are kept in Chicago. The Leavenworth prison records are kept in Kansas City. And the Secret Service records are kept in Maryland. Okay. So, um, I had some roadblocks when I did this because this, I did this research maybe, you know, 10 years ago or so. Um, and I was able to get some of it. Uh, the Leavenworth records were really easy. Even though I didn't actually go to Kansas City, um, there was a guy who works for the National Archives who was very helpful, and he was able to get me what I needed. The reason I bring this up is anybody who wants to try to replicate this today is in a much better position than I was 10 years ago <laughs> because almost all the Leavenworth records are now online on the National Archives website. So I had to actually go through and request them and pay these duplication fees, and it was a hassle and whatever. Now you just go to the National Archives and search a name, and you'll get the whole record is right on there. You get the mugshots, the whole deal. The federal courts are still not online, so that's still a, that's still a hurdle. But the Secret Service records have been going online. The ones that would be relevant here are not, but I imagine they will be sooner or later because they've been going through and adding them. So a lot of uh, cities, uh, New York, they've put online and some other cities they've put, I think New Orleans is another one they've put online. So they're working on it. Um, so if anybody were to try this now or five years from now, you'll probably find things that I missed just because I, I wasn't going to go out to Maryland to do research. <laughs> I, d- I don't have that kind of time or expense to just see if I can find something randomly. So, uh, there are pieces that could be found that I didn't find. And maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe Angelo Brando, maybe there's a piece of the story in there. But I uh, just wanted to throw that out there for anybody who's curious how the research is done or wanted to do it themselves. Um, it's getting easier. I mean, the internet, for all its, its greatness and terribleness, uh, for, for finding records, it's actually pretty great. And in 10 years, it'll took you six months to do some sort of research. And mm-hmm. You'll be able to do it in 10 minutes, probably, in 10 years on the Internet. So. Yeah. The National Archives, I have to give them credit, has been really, really good about trying to get as much as possible online. I mean, they've got millions of pages, so it's going to take them forever. forever. But, the, but they're trying. Yeah. Super cool. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for this week. Sorry about the, uh, the length of the episode. We tried not to go uh, this long. Yeah, uh, whatever. <laughs> we probably should have put a disclaimer out there because we, we knew this one was going to take a little bit. So, But anyways, if Gavin, if you want to hit him up with some contact info. Sure. Uh, you can find me at MilwaukeeMafia.com or MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com, whether you prefer the website or an email. Always happy to hear from anybody with any questions or comments. If you have an idea for a future show, please let us know. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep going through in uh, chronological order. But if you want to actually get out of the 1910s, uh, feel free to ask. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week. All right. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. I feel like I've heard all of those Italian names before in big mafia movies, and now it's just interesting to hear a little bit more of the real history behind it. But I still have two big questions at the end of this episode. How long does it take to dye a whole horse, and what happened to the society of the banana? Questions that are racking my brain, but I guess I'll just have to keep on listening to find out. For more fantastic Wisconsin Mafia history, go and follow and listen to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast wherever you like to listen. The links will also be in the show notes below. Next week, I'll be talking to a broadcast news journalist turned podcaster, Raquel Lamel. I'm David Kelso, your neighborly podcast nerd. Thanks for listening.